Well, I think this morning in the book of Romans, this is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 1. And when you study the Scriptures, I know all of you are in tune with the fact that it is inspired. We are reading something that God actually ultimately wrote. He uses human instruments and is able, because of his sovereign hand, to control the the thoughts or at least work in such a way without manipulating our wills, such that the original writers of Scripture received a revelation from God and they were able to put it down in parchment, if you will, and it's been preserved by the Holy Spirit such that we have it today and we believe in the concept of inspiration where God oversees the whole process. And because it's inspired what Paul wrote to a particular group of Christians in the first century, through inspiration, it is as if he wrote it last night to you and I, such that we have it this morning. And some passages seem to be a little bit more close at hand, if you will, than others. And this is one of the passages that it almost appears that he wrote to the USA 20, what what is it, 17? Is that where we're at? He's talking about a collapse of a culture. Now, you can take this passage in a broad sense, and he's writing to all of humanity. In fact, this is the beginning of the book of Romans. For you new people, we spent all of last semester just introducing the book of Romans. So we spent a lot of detail, a lot of time looking at the first 17 verses, And I gave a three-part introduction to the whole book, so we got the background and some of the characteristics of the book of Romans, and we're going to start in verse 18, and I'm going to try and give you an overview of the whole passage. So this is going to kind of be an overview rather than a detailed study. This will develop the context of the passage, so you have kind of a picture of where we're going week by week, so you don't get lost in the forest. You'll be able to see the forest and not get lost with the trees. So I'm going to try to get through all 18 verses. Some of them we'll just touch on, but generally what we do is we go sentence by sentence, and sometimes it takes us a whole hour to even get through one sentence. depends on how long the sentence is. So it deals with the collapse of a culture. You can take this in a broad sense in terms of all of mankind, all of humanity, Or it pertains to an individual, a person that is lost, that does not know Jesus Christ. We have the sequence as to how that happens. In other words, how does a person get totally alienated from God? This passage kind of tells us that. Now, this is the beginning of Paul developing step by step, essentially, a provision for what God has provided for all of mankind. And in general, mankind rejects what God has offered. So the culture basically has rejected the truth, if you will. And that kind of starts the process of degeneration. When a culture rejects what God has revealed under inspiration, the gospel message to begin with, and just truth in general... We're going to see what happens. There are stages that uh, a culture or an individual can go through until eventually we get to kind of a, a place where God takes 
take steps to intervene to deal with the situation. So that's kind of what this passage is dealing with. So the truth is shattered by man, mankind, not just Hillary, but <laughs> but others. So we'll probably look, when we get into some of the details, where our country today is failing and what we can look forward to as a culture unless we're able as believers to reverse that trend. And that's our task. And it almost appears the Lord has given us another opportunity to do that. More time to share the gospel with a lost world so that uh, we can do what we can, at least. We can be faithful to our calling in terms of turning the culture around. So that's what this passage is going to look at. So it's very, very important that we have a clear understanding of what God is doing in the world and what God has done in the past and what God can do as as he so pleases in his sovereignty. And like I said, this is addressed to the Romans, and in our introduction I showed you a lot of slides from the present-day archaeological site that you can visit today. This is just one of them. But uh, in our broad approach here, let me give you a big picture in terms of the book of Romans. We spent a lot of time in the introduction for 17 verses. We're going to begin a long section. In in fact, this is the main portion of the whole book of Romans. From verse 18 all all the way to the end of chapter 8. And I title it, A Provision of God's Righteousness. Now, we looked at that word, and in general, righteousness is a right standing before the ultimate righteous judge. A right standing before God himself, and he's the one that sets the standards. We're going to find right off the bat, on the next part of the slide here, we do not have righteous. And if you look at scripture in general, for example, like Isaiah, Isaiah says, any righteousness that we may think we have is like filthy rags. And I won't elaborate on that because we have women and children in our... But anyway... God has provided his righteousness, and he's going to deal with that. And it has impact on every aspect of our lives, or it should. The first thing that he has to do is to demonstrate that lack of righteousness. And because we don't have that righteousness of God, we stand condemned before a holy God. So that's where he starts. That's the starting point, and this is one of the main parts of the whole book of Romans, and I'm not sure we'll get through it before the Lord returns, but we'll just uh, let the Lord decide when he wants to, right? That'll run through the middle of chapter 3, so verse 18 to 320, and we'll get into that as far as we can, obviously not today, but not even this semester. But this is very, very important. Remember what did we talk about when we've talked about the gospel, the three elements? First part of presenting the gospel to somebody that doesn't know Christ. What's, well, what did we call that? The scumbags. <laughs> that was your description, but I used another little phrase there. Does anybody remember? The bad news, remember? That's the bad news. The bad news, all of humanity is separated from God All of humanity stands condemned. So that's what our passage is going to start off with, demonstrating that. And you remember when we were talking, I gave you the introduction, the book of Romans, 
Paul is working very, very carefully, step by step, logically. He's arguing like a lawyer would argue in a courtroom. He's going to present a case. And as he lays out that case, he's got to show that we are criminals and we stand condemned. And unless an unbeliever understands their situation, their separateness from Christ, and what separates them, then they have no interest in what God has provided to solve that issue. So he spends a lot of detail there. And we're going to spend a lot of detail looking at all of humanity, because all of humanity stands condemned. And then he gives what's the next thing that we need in order to change our bad news situation. We need some good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has provided everything that we need to have a relationship with, with God. Paul uses a term from the courts. We need acquittal is the word that we use, which would be equivalent to the biblical usage of the word justification. In other words, we need a justification declared by the ultimate judge of the universe that we, in fact, based on what Jesus has done for us, we stand before God instead of condemned, we can stand righteous. We can have a right standing, but we need justification. And that comes not by going to church, not by doing good deeds. That's the humanistic approach. That doesn't work. Paul's going to demonstrate that. It comes simply by trusting in what Jesus has already done for us. When he died on the cross, he took on the condemnation that we deserve. And now the judge can look at us and say, Jesus served all of the sentence that was falling on us so that now he can say, Jesus paid the penalty, we don't have to go to prison. Jesus paid the penalty, we can go free. We can be declared righteous. We can be justified. And it came simply by trusting in what Jesus did. That's the good news. We mess that up. We twist it around. We try to do something to please God. Nothing we can do comes by faith. It's going to be crystal clear in the book of Romans. Once we are justified, that's just the beginning of a lifelong pursuit that we want to continue. The next section, section chapters 6 through 8, it, call, it Paul uses the word sanctification. All that means is that now that we have been set apart for God initially and eternity is settled once and for all and we have a right standing before God and he looks at us as if he's looking at Jesus Christ so we never have to worry about the eternal consequences of sin but we are still in sinful bodies and we still sin How do we handle that on a day-by-day basis? That's called sanctification. In other words, how do we live a new life now that we have a new standing before, before God? That's called sanctification, and we'll get into that. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, chapter 6 through 8. And maybe we can study that when we are in the millennial kingdom or anything. All right?
So that's the provision of God's righteousness. This righteousness has effects in terms of eternity here and now, and it separates the true believer from the unbeliever. And we live in a culture that most of the culture basically is made up of unbelievers. So we are unique in that sense, in that we have been justified by faith, and now we are in the process of growing as Christians. That's called sanctification. That's the provision of God's righteousness, all the way to the end of chapter 8. And then he's going to deal with a particular situation. It's relevant to us today because... Israel is in the news all the time, so he's going to deal with a special situation in the first century. The Jews would have asked the question, well, you're talking mainly about Gentiles over here. What about us Jews? We're the people of God. We are the Old Testament saints, if you will. We're the people that had a relationship with you. Paul is going to demonstrate that God is righteous He's going to vindicate the righteousness of God in setting Israel aside. But he's going to make it clear that it's only temporary and there's going to be an ultimate regathering and a salvation available for Israel as a nation like in the Old Testament. And in fact, in the book of Romans, in chapter 11, it's going to run from 9 through 11, chapter 11, he's going to say, Eventually, all of Israel shall be saved. God is not through with the nation of Israel. So God's righteousness is vindicated. What do you think is the major theme of the book of Romans? God's righteousness. So we have the provision of God's righteousness. Now we have the vindication of God's righteousness. I'm not going to give you the rest of the outline, but in chapter 12, we have the application. In other words, how does it fit or how does it relate to particular situations in life? And he's going to apply that principle. That's the end of the book, or the end of the, yeah, essentially the end of the book until we get to the conclusion. So let's take a look at this first part, condemnation of all. We can break that down. The chapter we're going to look at, the rest of chapter one, the guilt of all humanity. He's going to establish that we stand guilty before a holy God. The heart of the unbeliever resists that at all costs. It resists that with all costs. So Paul has to go into detail to demonstrate that and make it clear, at least intellectually. And in general, that message is going to be rejected. And you and I probably rejected that message for part of our lives until we realized that we had a need for Jesus Christ. Make sense? Okay. So we're going to have bad news. We're going to spend a lot of time on the bad news And then eventually we'll get to the good news. And once we understand that, then the third step is what? Just believe. Just believe. All right. And then transfer. So let's take a look at the guilt of the guilt of humanity. He's going to deal with humanity in general. And then the Jews are going to say, ah, we're kind of special. We're God's people. He's going to say, well, not unless you have a right standing. So he has to demonstrate the guilt of the Jews as well. And if Jews and Gentiles stand condemned, then what? If they're they're both guilty, what's the conclusion? Guilt of all mankind. And he does that, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. See the context? That's the context of our passage. Let's not lose sight of that. So, guilt of humanity, I'm going to break this down into two parts, 18 through 23. And we'll spend several weeks just on that. 
And let's break that down even further. Well, let me give you a big picture in chart form, since a lot of you like the chart. I've given you all of the Bible on one slide. Let me give you all of chapter 1, at least beginning verse 18 on one slide. Man is under God's wrath. In fact, somebody read verse 18. Notice how it starts out. The wrath of God is revealed to the truth and unrighteousness. Okay, the wrath of God is revealed. We're going to spend some time on that. The wrath of God is revealed. And essentially, all of mankind that is in an unrighteous state, in other words, they don't have a correct standing before God. And you can't do anything. You can't be a Mother Teresa. You know, all these good works. You can't do anything to change that situation. In fact, Paul calls us what in Ephesians 2? We are what to one? We're dead in our trespasses and Now, we may not realize it. The unbeliever is unaware of that. But we are dead. In other words, we can't do anything. We can't lift a finger. Corpse can't lift a finger to do anything to change his deadness. We can't do the same. So that causes us to be under the wrath of God. We're condemned, essentially. Another way of putting it. And then from 19 to 23, he's going to give the reasons for it. He's going to argue and present this case as if he's standing in a courtroom before a judge, and in fact we are in a broad courtroom, we are standing before the judge of the universe, and Paul is going to develop a case step by step, and he's going to give the reasons why mankind is under wrath. That's 19 through 23. And then, after he establishes that we are under wrath and condemned, then he's going to give us the rendering of God's wrath, 24 through 32. In other words, if you notice in verse 18, what tense is that verb? In other words, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's under present, present tense, present ongoing. Very good. It's in the present tense. And Paul is saying the wrath of God is revealed here and now. There is a future sense. We'll talk about that. We're going to look at some details concerning that idea of wrath. There's a future wrath that is even perhaps beyond our lifetime that the Bible speaks of. In this context, he's talking about present tense. There's a sense in which the wrath of God is displayed today. You can see it. We can look at our culture and you can see that the wrath of God is poured out on our culture. And verses 24 through 32 is the rendering. And if you haven't guessed already from the outline seat, I'm using ours, a little bit of alliteration here. So God is rendering or pouring out wrath in a present tense sense. And if you look at the end, beginning in verse 24, God has given them up. You could even translate it. God has given up the culture. And he repeats it in 26. And then in 28, he repeats it again. So if you didn't get it the first time, three times, he says God has given them over to these things. So when people fall into addictions, we're going to talk a little bit about that when we get into the context. When people fall into unbreakable bonds of sin and degeneration, there's nothing that man can do, but it's, it is a real outpouring of the wrath of God. In other words, he just lets people go the way that sin is going to take them, 
And sin has a destructive past. And an entire culture can fall into that downward spiral. Mary, Mary Lee. Is he king the dust? I mean, in the dust off of Jews yet? Because then, so yeah, we're seeing said. Right. Because that's coming. Yeah. As long as there are believers who are the salt of the earth, there's always the opportunity for a culture to turn around. And that's our, our job. That's what he's empowered us to do. If we do not do what God desires, and in his sovereignty, remember, if you look historically, this is what happened to the nation of Israel. God gave them several hundred years, and as they degenerated, he intervened, and what happened to them, 586, destroyed the nation. Babylonian invasion that took the nation of Israel captive. Same thing can happen. In fact, you see these cycles of sin throughout history. What happened before the Genesis flood? Total culture collapsed. In other words, it was just basically depraved. God brings a Genesis flood, saves eight people. So you can see this historically worked out over and over. At the end of the church age, you can expect a similar thing before the believers are taken out. So this describes the later stages of a culture this passage, okay? So that's the whole passage that we'll be looking at. We're going to spend some time, next week we won't get through verse 18, or two weeks from. So we're going to break that one down, and I'm going to give you an overview. First of all, we have verse 18, we have a revelation of God's wrath. That's what the text says. Let's look at it. For the wrath of God is, present tense, is revealed. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In other words, you can't figure it out philosophically. You can't figure it out scientifically. It takes a revelation from God to be able to see it. And this passage is the passage that tells us this is what God is doing in every culture, not just America, but every culture in the world. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And what is it against? In other words, it is showing the condemnation It's against all ungodliness. In other words, everything that is in opposition to God. We'll look at every one of these terms in some detail. And unrighteousness of men. In other words, men's standing that is not a proper standing before God. Unrighteousness, obviously the opposite of righteousness. Righteousness, a right standing before God. Everything else that is not righteous is unrighteous. And that's where we stand unless we have Jesus Christ, unless we know him. So the mass masses of our culture stand in that situation. And God is against that. And he's actively doing things right now, present tense. We'll look at that in some detail. And he describes the nature of the sinful heart. We don't like truth. We shatter the truth who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, everything that we do, we do it out of that unrighteous standing. And one of the things we do is we suppress the truth. We don't like to know what the truth is because it condemns us unless we know Jesus Christ again. That's the only exception. It's the only escape. Unless we have a right standing, now we're freed. And that's what the book of Romans is going to teach us. So that's verse 18, and we'll come back to it because we have to understand what this wrath of God is like and how God does it historically. He's 
poured out wrath in the past. Genesis flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, nation of Israel, other examples. He's going to do it in the future. There's going to be a final judgment. There's going to be a final display of wrath. This is a present tense outworking of it. All right. So, verse 19, he's going to give reasons for that wrath. Verse 19. So, he's going to begin this section, reasons for it, and it's going to go all the way through verse 23. Got it? All right. So, verse 19, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, etc. 19, because. Because tells us what? Why? In other words, why does God pour out wrath in a present tense sense? Because of the following, and that's going to run all the way to verse 23. Because... See, it's important that we look at individual little words in the biblical text. We want to be very careful, as we've done in other occasions. First thing he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. But I want to stress here, and I want you to notice, and when we get to this passage a month from now or whenever, I'm going to stress these the idea that God has revealed himself and he's made things known to every person on the planet that has ever lived from Adam on and will continue doing it until the last person is born. So it's not a lack of knowledge. God has made this revelation. We're going to find out how God does that when we get into the text. But what I want you to notice The reason the wrath of God is poured out is because God has made himself known to everyone. So everyone has had an opportunity to come to God. That's the essence of what... Because that which is known, in other words, it's not just kind of a a vague thought that enters somebody's mind and went away real quickly. People know that there is a God. Because that which is known about God is evident. In other words, they have a sense. This is reality. This is truth. Got it? It is evident within them for God himself, the sovereign God, the creator of the universe, God made it evident to them. He's talking about all of humanity here that has ever existed on the face of the earth. God has made himself known. Got it? The next part, verses 20 through 21 tells us more about this revelation, but also what man does with that revelation. The nature of the human heart is to suppress that truth. In other words, we push it away. We deny it. We substitute other things for it. Verse 24, he's continuing logically, for since the creation of the world, in other words, since Adam and Eve, this is where I get the idea that all of humanity is in view here. Before there were Jews, All the way from the creation. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, in other words, something of the nature of God, and then more specifically, his eternal power. And you could think and look out into the universe and you see the sun and its awesome power. So much power that we cannot even conceive of it. And then you think about our Milky Way and there's a hundred billion suns in our Milky Way. And if that's not enough to blow your mind, astrophysicists estimate that there are 100 billion Milky Ways or 100 billion galaxies in the universe. We can't even conceive of the power of God. We can't conceive of the power of one sun. That shows to any scientist 
that has any brain whatsoever, that has thought about these things in any manner at all, that God has eternal power because he's the creator of the entire universe. He's a creator of all of the galaxies. His power is evident. Every time you see the sun shining, you see the power of God. And you see it in other ways as well. And not only that, his divine nature, that points to there has to be a God that is bigger than the universe. And he's got not only power, but he has to have the wisdom and the knowledge to know how to make a universe work. Every man has a sense of that. Not a complete sense, but enough. Because the passage goes on, and notice the words again. All of this have been clearly seen. There's an observational word. This is what a scientist does. He observes the natural realm. Every scientist has a revelation of God being understood. There's another word relating to knowing. They understand it enough. And it's through the creation, through what has been made. So anybody that looks out at the creation since the beginning of creation has this revelation. See that? This is what's called general revelation. We'll talk about that and make a distinction. Yes, general revelation. Very good. So I'm going to start this little chart here. What God does is he reveals himself to mankind. So the first thing that we have in 19 and 20 is that man has a realization. And I choose that word because I'm going to follow with other R's in there. I'm using alliteration, all right? Man has a realization that God exists. He has a realization of something of his nature. And he can grasp something of the eternal power that he can have a realization of or an understanding of. That's 19 and 20. And that revelation is adequate because it says at the end here, through what has been made, in other words, what God has created, so you can study the creation and you should have some knowledge of God. That's general revelation. So you see it all over. So it doesn't matter if you live in Africa, you live in God's creation and you can see, you can see the stars, you can see what God has produced in terms of life. You can see geophysics, any area of science. So everyone has an exposure to this revelation. And not only, I didn't emphasize it, but we'll talk about God made it evident within them. In other words, there's something inside of every man that tells him there has to be a God. So there's no such thing as a true atheist. An atheist is simply someone who has suppressed the truth so much And he's done something else that the pastor is going to tell us, such that he's convinced himself that there's no God, and now he says there's no God. But he has received a revelation somewhere in his life, maybe as a child, where it is evident within him. And as a result of that, they, who's the they? All of mankind, all who suppress the truth, all people, including you and I, Now, we've broken out of it in Christ, but outside of Christ, they are without excuse. The word there, I'll develop the word there, but it's it's the word for apologetics, and it has the idea of no one's going to be able to have an apologetic before God. No one's going to be able to have a defense. It's a legal term. No one is going to be able to stand up in eternity 
when we stand before God and say, well, God, I, I went to church most of the time. I helped the poor in all these ways. I did all these things to my neighbor. I did, and I tried to live a life. I did more good things than evil things. None of that's going to stand up. We are not going to have a defense. We're going to stand before that holy God condemned unless we trust in Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to develop. But he's giving the bad news first. They are without excuse. No one is going to be able to stand before God and have a defense or give a reason why God should say, well, I'm going to grade on the curve. Come on in. There's no curves. No grading on the curves. The eternal thing. So we have revelation that God makes. Man knows something of it. And by the way, I should have mentioned when it says they are without excuse, the revelation that God has given is adequate to condemn. It's adequate to condemn, but not adequate to save. That requires special revelation. We'll get into that detail. So we need to know about Jesus Christ and that person in the darkest place of America that uh, claims that he's never heard the word of God. He has a revelation, but he needs the revelation of the gospel message and the word of God in order to overcome this uh, condemned state. So they are without excuse in terms of God revealing himself. And if I believe if a person uh, responds positively to that revelation, no matter where that person is, God will send him a missionary. And give him special revelation. Because the only way is in Jesus Christ. Where scriptures make sense? We'll develop that further. So we have revelation. Every man realizes what God has said. Verse 20, the end of it there, is every man stands responsible before God. They're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him. This is kind of a description of mankind in general did not honor him as God or give thanks. In other words, they suppressed that truth, rejected that truth, and did not respond by looking at the creation and saying, oh, there must be a mighty God that has created all of this, rejected that. They knew him, notice the emphasis again, they knew him in this limited way, not in a personal relationship. They knew that there must be a God, but they did not honor him or give thanks. So now we have rejection in verse 21. They reject God, the God that created all things. And now that caused something to happen within them. Now they became futile in their speculations. They came to the wrong conclusions concerning the creation. They came to the conclusion, oh, isn't evolution wonderful? Right? Or, hmm? We just need more time. Yeah, we just need... an. More time for everything to continue to evolve. Very good. But the unbelieving mind, their thinking is affected. They're futile. They're become futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, they're not able to see reality. Not able to see in terms of spiritual things. <coughs> they may be brilliant. They may have PhDs. They may be able to have limited knowledge, but when it comes to things that matter in terms of eternity, they are darkened and foolish. See what we're saying here? So they rationalize everything. Rationalization, that's verse 21. Now verses 22 through 23, we have the results of that. Man cannot live without religion, if you will. 
You have to replace it. So 22 and 23 are the results of that rejection and the replacement of God with something else. 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what they become. In our little thing here, we call that reprobation. In other words, now they are repro- uh, reprobate is somebody that is totally out of sequence in terms of God. It's verse 22. And then uh, verse 23, and here's the replacement. They exchange, the reason I put these together is because it's one sentence. And exchange the glory of God. In other words, the God that created all things with eternal power and great invisible attributes. They replaced him or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, the unchangeable God, for an image. All unbelievers are idolaters. Not that they're bowing down by a figure that they've created, but anything that replaces the one true God We worship it. And most of the time in our culture, we worship ourselves. In other words, I am the center of the universe. Everything revolves around me. That's idolatry. So every man exchanges the revelation of the one true God for something else. And in primitive cultures, they actually bow down before actual little images, or they make create these images. But we do it in different ways. We might worship money. We might worship success. We might worship your wife or or your husband or you might or your children or whatever. But we exchange it. We exchange the glory of God for whatever. It's always less than God. You see, you see our culture. Both to, yeah, we can do that as believers. Yeah, there you, you see go. our culture freedom of speech that I need speech. Yeah, yours isn't, but mine is. Yeah, exactly. And for an image, and sometimes it takes the form of corruptible man. There's man, there's self-centeredness. And of birds, some cultures worship birds, etc. Four-footed animals and crawling, you know, whatever. We'll get into the details of that. So man makes a replacement. See the sequence, the downward spiral here? A realization of reality and truth makes man responsible, but he rejects it in general. Few respond, and God sends the gospel message, and people are converted. But he's talking about mankind in general. And now we rationalize and and think in terms of other ideas, other theories. That causes us to have changes within us. We become fools. And now we replace, because we have, Ecclesiastes says we have eternity in our hearts. In other words, we have a vacuum that needs to be filled with something. And by the way, some people fill it with church or religion. So we replace it. And now, 24 to 32, we have God pouring out wrath in a culture or in an individual. So we have the last part, 24 to 32, the rendering of wrath, God's rendering of wrath. And real quickly, I'm not going to get into any detail here, but we'll go into detail when we get there, if we get there. Verse 24, therefore. In other words, here's the conclusion. He's made the case. He's made the legal arguments. And now the judge is going to act. And one way that he acts over history and over time, God gave them over. The Greek word there is the same in all three of these. And I'll give you a word study on it. But God gave them over. You could even say God gave them up to these things. 
And in verse 24, gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. In other words, he lets people go into whatever sin they're preoccupied with. If it's the sin of, of success and self-centeredness, they go off on that, and that becomes the focus their whole life. They never think about spirit. They just keep going in that direction. And when God lets a person go in this direction, it's a sense of his outpouring of wrath. In other words, he lets them destroy themselves, basically. And if you didn't get it in verse 24, skip to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over. Same word. And then he lists some things here. And this is very descriptive that is sobering when you think of our culture. He's talking about homosexuality. That's an end product of God allowing a culture. We call that freedom today in our culture. In fact, you can suffer legal consequences if you even speak up against this whole area. This is where our culture is. It is a result of God letting the culture go rather than intervening and bringing, say, revival. And if you didn't get that, when you get to verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God... See, we have rejection again. God gave them over, same word. God gave them over, and then he has a long list all the way to the end of uh, end of the chapter. See how it all hangs together? It's the main thing. I want you to see the big context here. We're going to look at the detail of that context next week. So we have a realization of reality, of the revelation that God gave. So we stand responsible before holy God, verse 20. We generally reject revelation, we suppress it, and we rationalize. And when we rationalize, now we have to think of something new. So, uh, well, first of all, our minds become reprobate. We can't even see the truth. And then we replace the truth with something else, or we replace God with something else. And we can replace God with other gods. That's how it manifests a religious idea. And what's the last one? What's the last R there? Wrath, very good. It just so happens to start with a W, but (laughs) wrath, 24 through 32. Got it? See all the R's there? There is an R here. Another way of looking at it, here's another summarization. Reasons for wrath. We reject revelation. Notice all the R's here. We have rebellious reasoning in our minds. And it ends up in ruinous religion of some sort, whether it be worship of self. And now we have God's righteous rejection of mankind. That's outpouring of wrath with W. Got it? We are the salt of the earth in a dying culture. We have the answer and the only answer that can change a culture. And that's the gospel message. Who wants to close for us? Heavenly Father, thank you for, for just uh, sharing the word and how um, working our lives, Lord, that we share that light, salt to the thank you, Jesus. Name. Amen. Now, on the outline sheet, I have an outline of the whole passage there. Next week, I'll break it down. Very. Yeah.